Hey folks, guess what? We just hit 100,000 downloads, which is, which is just like, wow. So today we're going to do something a little special to celebrate. Thank you to all you hardcore listeners out there. This one's for you. Okay, so confession time. When I first started this podcast, I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified because I had committed to making a podcast about sex and gender, exploring all kinds of different genders and orientations and sexual differences across history, and I realized I'm just a straight dude. <laughs> I'm just a straight cis dude. What business have I got talking about this stuff when many of you out there may have a much more personal experience of these issues than I do? Now, to be fair, everybody's got a story, plain vanilla or not, and my story ain't that plain vanilla, actually. My senior thesis in creative writing was a feminist comic book script. I've probably spent more time in drag than 99% of my graduating class, and hell, I'm not even sure that my dad believes that I'm 100% straight. <laughs> but still, at the end of the day, I am a straight cis guy. I never had anyone try to run me over with a truck because of my orientation, like my gay friend Mark. I never had to struggle with the budding knowledge that my true gender was not what everybody assumed because of how my body appeared on the outside, like my trans friend Brit. I never had to ask myself, how do I raise a daughter who says she's a tomboy, like author Lisa Selen Davis, who we had on this show. I never had to deal with any of these things, so what business do I have talking about the history of sex and gender. But no one else was doing it. I couldn't find, and I still can't find, another podcast that focuses specifically on sex and gender across history and across cultures and brings it all together in a way that makes sense. No other podcast spans the sex and gender gamut in a way that cuts across audiences so that straight cis folks learn about queer stuff and queer folks learn about straight cis stuff. And no one else airs episodes on this topic from guest podcasters to knit those audiences together and amplify each other's voices. No one else was doing it. And so I thought, well, maybe that could be me. But I held off saying too much about myself and my background because, well, I wanted to prove that I could do it first. I wanted to prove to the listener, but more importantly, I wanted to prove it to myself that I could talk about this stuff with a reasonable degree of nuance and sensitivity, even though I enjoy pretty much every kind of privilege that there is. Well, I think by this point, I think I have proven that. I mean, 100,000 downloads is... It's a milestone that I never thought that we would achieve. And it says something. And so today, as a special episode, you know, maybe it's time to pull back the curtain a bit. This one's going to be a little more personal. This is for you, the listeners out there, new listeners, as well as those who have stuck with me over the last 55 episodes. Many of you are patrons who I've drawn portraits for, so I know your faces, I've communicated with you, and, you know, some of you even followed me over from my other show, Dead Ideas, and I'm grateful to you for that. So today, I'm going to share my story. How do I fit in to this sex and gender landscape that we've been talking about on this show? How do I, as a straight cis dude, perform my masculinity in a way that's not toxic or you know, to the best of my ability, not toxic. That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, this is the history of sex, and this is my sex and gender.
The History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our new patron, Shelley Botts, for making this episode possible. So today's episode is about, well, yours truly, and I'm actually kind of finding it hard to talk about myself. I don't know where to start, so I guess I'll just start somewhere. So I grew up in a small rural town in Minnesota where life revolved around what I called the three chuhs, church, trucks, and tractor pulls. It was almost all conservative, almost all white, and almost entirely cis-hetero, or at least that's what was apparent from the outside. In retrospect, one of my friends in high school was a raging butch lesbian, but it honestly really just didn't occur to me to even be wondering about that kind of difference at the time. I mean, it was the 90s, which wasn't that long ago, but things were really different back then. There was much less public awareness around sex and gender. I mean, we knew the guy who ran the local flower shop was fruity as a tequila sunrise, but other than that, it was just kind of assumed that everyone else was just the norm, quote-unquote, unless informed otherwise. But that norm, like all norms, I mean, it was artificial. Norms are created and enforced in a way that may feel natural and can appear almost invisible from the inside, but they're artificial. And thinking back, I can totally see that now in my, my childhood. So to go all the way back to my early childhood, which that would be in the 80s, actually, I remember that the only cartoon that I was not allowed to watch as a young child was Jim and the Holograms. Now, why wasn't I allowed to watch it? Because it was for girls. So for those who don't know, Jim is about an all-girl pop band, and I was forbidden to watch it. But I liked the colors. I liked the face paint. And so I watched it anyway, in secret. And that kind of forms the template for the whole rest of my story. And for many people's stories, I suspect. You know, always kind of intrigued by the grass on the other side, but solidly whacked back into traditional cis-heteronormativity. You know, as a small child, I also remember that my mom used to like to watch Flashdance. Or maybe some TV knockoff adaptation of it whose name doesn't survive the wreckage of my memory. But anyway, I was kind of intrigued by it too. But when I would come in and sit down, she would turn it off or change the channel because that wasn't for me. You know, norms are artificial. We create them through hundreds, if not thousands, of little interactions just like these. Kids aren't born with an innate sense of how to perform their sex or their gender. They pick it up through all these subtle, or sometimes not so subtle, cues just like these. Yeah, I remember in first grade, which for my international listeners, that's primary school. It was six years old, about. I remember I was in first grade, and the teacher asked everyone to say their favorite color. Innocent question, right? But even at that age, I thought, you know, that's a really weird question. It's a weird question because how can one color be better than another? You can have a lighter pink or a deeper green, but how can you compare them one to another? Not on the same scale. It didn't make any sense to me. 
But when it came to be my turn, I just said blue. Why did I say blue? Because that was my dad's favorite color, and I was a boy. That's how gender happens. Even something so innocuous as a favorite color can be gendered and can reinforce who you're supposed to emulate and what you are supposed to be. And then by the time you grow up, you've forgotten about how weird it was the first time you encountered these things, and it all just feels natural from the dawn of time. But it's not. It's fake. It's all just a big Truman show getting us to conform and to perform our assigned sex and gender roles. All right, so back to my story. Fast forward now to high school. So we're, we're in the 90s again now. I'm a teen, and like many teens, I get the urge to, you know, be a little edgy, and so I start to grow my hair out. I wanted to have hair like Gavin Rosdale from Bush. You know, and I even got it permed once, too, to try to mimic Gavin's curls. It didn't work. It looked horrible. I do not recommend it. My hair just, it was more naturally straight, so I just let it do its own thing after that, and I kind of end up looking more like Kurt Cobain, actually. So I kept it about shoulder length, you know, not that crazy, but I liked it. But my dad says to me once, he says, <clears throat> You know, earlier I saw you walking outside from behind, and I didn't recognize you right away, and you know what I thought? I thought you were a girl. And he said it just like that. He said it with that tone that suggested that he expected me to be like, mortified or something to hear this that he thought I was a girl but what I actually felt inside was this rush of pride now why pride why would I feel pride because I just felt like that was what someone in the modern world was supposed to be doing you should be mixing it up a little you should be breaking down stereotypes you should be secure enough in your masculinity to risk a little and it's not like I was gender-bending or something. I mean, I looked like Kurt Cobain, for crying out loud. I looked like a rock icon, a male rock icon. And that pretty much encapsulates my approach to masculinity. All the same masculine virtues, but turned to modern ends. Western masculinity has long been about courage, defense of others, and being a provider. Well, why can't that be courage to stand up against chauvinism and homophobia? Why can't that be, you know, defense of women's rights or trans rights? Why can't that be being a provider of not just material security, but emotional security, emotional support for all who depend on you, regardless of their difference from you? To me, being a man means being tough enough to change and to put others' interests before your own. In other words, my masculinity is all the same traditional virtues, but attuned to the needs of the day, or the, at least the best that I can do. And that's where I actually differ quite a bit from a lot of other things out there that are re recommending, you know, how men should be. You know, you Google, how do you avoid toxic masculinity? And there's all this advice, and it's usually stuff like, well, men should be vulnerable, and they should be not afraid to cry, and... I do actually agree with that advice. I think that's very healthy for both women and men. But I totally and completely disagree with the messaging strategy of it. I think that those in our culture are female-coded virtues. 
And when you focus on female-coded virtues like that, you're just never going to reach the guy you actually need to reach. You're never going to reach someone who's not already on board with those female-coded virtues. You're just preaching to the choir. Instead, what I feel, and this is just me, you know, not every guy has to be like this, but this is how I feel. I feel that what we need to do is talk to men in men's terms and celebrate the best aspects of masculinity. Strength, courage, endurance, self-sacrifice. But we need to promote those virtues to modern ends. And that's what I try to do. I, I try to live that as best I can, you know, in big ways and small ways. I mean, big ways, I guess, you know, making a freaking podcast about sex and gender, but in little ways too. Because as we've seen, it's the accumulation of all the little things that artificially create our gender norms. So, for example, I won't necessarily open a door for a woman that I'm walking with. Yes, I know it's a courtesy and a nicety and all of that. And, you know, if I know that she appreciates a door being held for her, then yeah, sure, I'll do that. Of course I'll do that. But in general, I feel that it is a far greater courtesy to her to grant her the equality of just being able to open her own doors. <laughs> Am I right? I mean, you know, not have something assumed about what she wants just because she's a woman. <laughs> is it just me? Uh, you know, similarly... If a girl is getting into an argument in my presence, and maybe even a physical altercation, and I watch carefully to see if my help is needed, but if she's got it, well, then she's got it. You know, she doesn't need somebody to step in and defend if she's got it. Be ready to be the defender, but don't assume. That's how I try to play a situation like that. And another thing is, I don't have to be the driver in a car, necessarily. You know, in the case of my wife and I, it so happens that she's a much better driver than I am. She just is. I don't really like driving. She does. So I'm very happy to just ride. I mean, who cares? But even today in 2021, I still do get coworkers or friends or whoever who see us and say something like, so uh, Rachel always drives, huh? What's the story with that? And you know, in those moments, I know that my masculinity has been dinged you know, in their eyes in some way. But to me, it's not a ding, it's a point of masculinity. It's a point of masculinity because it's traditional masculine virtues turned to modern ends. It's being secure and courageous enough to risk a ding to your masculinity in order to stand up for others, even in small ways, like in this case, just standing up for Rachel's love for driving, <laughs> you know? Being a man to me is, it's about that. And it's also about being secure and confident. I mean, I've spent more time in drag than I'm sure 99% of my graduating class because who cares? <laughs> Costume parties? Sure, I'll go in drag. And also my wife, you know, she likes to play makeup with me and she likes to see me in gender-bent outfits. So, you know, if we're going out dancing and it fits the vibe of the place we're going to, then sure, why not? Who cares? And to me, being a man also is about being a feminist, too. And I know that some may hear that as a contradiction, but it's certainly not a contradiction to me. I wrote my senior thesis in creative writing as a feminist comic book script, and there was a, an avowed feminist girl in my class. <laughs> and today, I probably wouldn't be quite... I'd probably be a little more hesitant to submit that script in that class, but I was younger and dumber and, you know, more ballsy back then. And at the end of the day... She told me that 
she was just ready to hate my script, but I actually captured that feminist voice pretty well. That's what she said. So, <laughs> and you know, looking back on the experience, maybe I should have listened more than I spoke, uh, uh, but, you know, at least I tried. And to me, that's, that's what a man should be. I mean, he should be a defender, a defender of women's rights, too. Anyway, that's a whole lot about my masculinity, and I suppose I should talk about my sexual orientation, too. But there's really not that much to tell other than that I'm straight, and I've found personally the best way to become secure in your orientation is just to be open to exploring otherwise. I remember at university once, a friend took me to a gay club, and I flirted with a guy there, and at the end of the night I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm straight. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I felt a little bad about the flirting because I know what it's like to be led on. But as far as becoming secure in my orientation, it was like, ah, well, there you go. You know, I, I think my dad wonders about my orientation more than I do. Once when I was studying also in university, this is when I was studying abroad in England, my mom wanted to visit me, but he just really didn't want to, but then suddenly changed his mind. And I didn't know why until one night he sat me down in a pub there and he said to me, son, you know, it's it's okay to be gay, but don't give up on women. And, and I was like, well, thanks, dad. 100% uh, straight, but thanks. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what put the bee in his bonnet to wonder if I might be turning gay or turning bi or something like that. But apparently something did and enough that he flew across the ocean to tell me that. So I guess two points for effort. I, I think I'm just a different kind of guy, and he doesn't know what to deal with me. And also, you know, he's just from a different generation. And every generation faces different challenges that are just, frankly, hard to deal with. For me, the real challenge is more around, like, trans and cis issues. I mean, this episode here, I've, I've spoken at length with all these stories of other things about me. But to be honest, when I think about being cisgender, I feel kind of blocked. I don't know what to say. That's a challenge for me. I, I mean... I'm assigned male and entirely comfortable with that, but it's hard for me to interrogate my cisgenderness in any nuance, and I, I think that's a generational thing. I mean, my generation in the 90s, they just, there was no awareness of it at the time, and I think that young people of the current generation might have a lot more to say about that, and actually, if there's anybody out there who's willing to share, I would be very curious to hear from you if you have these kind of you know, experiences of what it's like to question your assigned sex. So if you do, drop me a line. Honestly, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. So anyway, to sum all of this up, you know, what's my sex and gender? Well, you know, straight, cis, male. Plain vanilla, but not that plain vanilla. And, I, you know, I don't know. I just try to live that out in a way that's non-toxic and, you know, fit for the modern era. Maybe the best example that I've heard to sum all of this up. And this is also what I'll close with today. And this example doesn't actually come from me. It comes from my close friend, Andre. Uh, he told me once that there was, you know, some point in his life where he decided that he wanted to dye his hair some wild colors, like red, blue, magenta, that kind of thing. He just liked the colors. But, you know, looking back, it probably looked like a rainbow. And he was walking in the street one day and somebody yelled, Gay! And you know what he thought to himself? He thought, okay, now it's on. From now on, it's rainbow from here on out. Why? Because 
middle finger to that, right? <laughs> middle finger to those old-fashioned, traditional, toxic, homophobic values. That's not the masculinity that we need for today. It's just not. What is the masculinity that we do need for today? It's that. It's standing up for what's right. It's giving that middle finger to the ways that are just not right anymore. That's masculinity done right. That's good role modeling. That's allyship. That's security. That's courage. Traditional masculine virtues turn to non-traditional ends. I love it. That's him and that's me too. So that's me in a nutshell, folks. I, that's my masculinity. That's my sex and gender. Not everyone's like me. Not everyone has to be. But that's me. And like I said at the beginning, you know, straight cis dude, plain vanilla, but not that plain vanilla. When I started this podcast, I was terrified because I felt that I had no cred to be talking about this stuff. And there was actually a significant amount of, you know, imposter syndrome. But you know, everyone has a story, plain vanilla or not. And doing this podcast has actually made me more secure in my masculinity. Yes, I'm a straight cis man, and every month I amplify the voices and the stories of women, of gays, of lesbians, of trans people, of bisexuals, of cross-dressers, of non-binary folk, and men too. And I try to do my part, in what little ways I can, to be a man for the modern era. So there you go. That's me. That's my story. And now you know. And you know, thinking back, geez... It's a good thing that my parents didn't let me watch Gem and the Holograms, right? Because just think how I might have turned out. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. So that's me. What about you? What's your take on sex and gender? I'd love to hear from you. I've done the vulnerable thing and shared my story. What about your story? I'd actually love to hear what you have to say. You can find me on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'm at History of Sex Pod. Drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Folks, if you like what we're doing on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can also pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you rocking a raging rainbow mohawk or whatever you want. And it doesn't even have to be a, a portrait of you. I actually just drew a portrait of patron Stuart's cat, his one-eyed cat, Leo, as a Chinese pirate. So seriously, whatever you want, I'll make it look awesome. I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, everybody, thanks so much for sticking with me to 100,000 downloads. And we've got a lot more coming down the pipe, too. Next month, we've got a very special guest episode coming up. It's from a podcast that is one of the closest in spirit to this show that I have found. It's called The History of Gay Sex, which you should definitely check out. They just released an episode on same-sex relationships in samurai Japan. That was fascinating. So check them out and look for a guest episode on this show next month from them. Then, after that, we're probably going to head to the wild, wild west. I have been reading up on the American frontier, so grab your Stetson hat and get ready to saddle up. And of course, every time I announce a plan on this show, it seems to go awry, so no promises, but that is where my head is at right now. That's where we're probably headed. All right, everybody, 
Thank you very much for your support. I will see you next time. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.